0: You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. In order to win at poker, you must establish credibility. Credibility that when you are betting, you've got the cards. And the way you do that, and this is very important in foreign policy too, is to establish your credibility up and down the line, a seamless web, and that's particularly true in small pots. Richard Nixon, 1983 interview with Frank Gannon.
1: Build a structure of peace in the world in which the weak are as safe as the strong, in which each respects the right of the other to live by a different system, in which those who would influence others will do so by the strength of their ideas and not by the force of their arms. Let us accept that high responsibility, not as a burden, but gladly. Gladly because the chance to build such a peace is the noblest endeavor in which a nation could engage. this administration, our lines of communication will be open. We seek an open world, open to ideas, open to the exchange of goods and people, a world in which no people, great or small, will live in angry isolation. We cannot expect to make everyone our friend, but we can try to make no one our enemy. In Los Angeles, California. Good evening. President Nixon tonight has flown from his home at San Clemente to a television studio here in Los Angeles to deliver what the White House terms a major statement. The president this week has been conferring extensively with Secretary of State William Rogers and Mr. Nixon's National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, leading to speculation that tonight's subject will be in the area of foreign policy. Here now is the president of the United States with what the White House terms a major statement. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger, my assistant for national security affairs, to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with premier Cho lai The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Zhou Enlai and Dr. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's assistant for national security affairs, held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Zhou Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date Before May 1972, President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries, and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. In anticipation of the inevitable speculation, which will follow this announcement, I want to put our policy in the clearest possible context. Our action in seeking a new relationship with the People's Republic of China will not be at the expense of our old friends. It is not directed against any other nation. We seek friendly relations with all nations. Any nation can be our friend without being any other nation's enemy. I have taken this action because of my profound conviction that all nations will gain from a reduction of tensions and a better relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. It is in this spirit that I will undertake what I deeply hope will become a journey for peace. Peace not just for our generation, but for future generations on this earth we share together. Thank you, and good night. And I ask you to join me tonight, while events are fresh, while the iron is hot, in starting to consider how we can help to make that mark what we want it to be. The foundation has been laid for a new relationship between the two most powerful nations in the world. And now it is up to us, to all of us here in this chamber, to all of us across America, to join with other nations in building a new house upon that foundation, one that can be a home for the hopes of mankind and a shelter against the storms of conflict.
2: Interrupt our regularly scheduled programs so that we may bring you the following special report from ABC News. ABC News presents The Peace is Signed. Here is ABC News
0: correspondent Sam Donaldson. Good morning from New York. Peace is not only at hand, it is here. True, the fighting continues in South Vietnam, but that will last only until 7 o'clock New York time, which is 8 a.m. Sunday. And I know that at Henry Kissinger's uh, news conference the other day, when he was explaining uh, these agreements and what they stood for. Without saying it in so many words, uh, he made it clear we wouldn't. That's it, Sam. It's all over.
3: This, In the broadest context, uh, when Nixon and Kissinger came in, as you briefly mentioned, we were bogged down in the Vietnam War. We had an uneasy relationship with the Soviets on top of the Czechoslovakian invasion, and we had no contact with China. So Nixon and Kissinger's Highest priorities all happened to be with communist countries. End the war in Vietnam, more stable relationship with Moscow, open up with Beijing, and they were all interrelated. At the same time, you had a domestic scene, which was also undercutting uh, posture abroad. Anti-Vietnam War protests, assassinations, race riots, uh, tremendous turmoil in this country. So they faced a very challenging uh, environment. <coughs> So the three top priorities in foreign policy were the ones I mentioned, and they were interrelated. In order to have better relations with the Soviets, you open up with China to get uh, Moscow's attention. Uh, You keep China a little bit nervous, because with China, it's after 25 years of isolation and no normalization. It was mostly discussions, not agreements. Whereas with Moscow, you're making agreements, and China can see it's concrete. And by opening up with both these giants, patrons of Hanoi, you put pressure on the North Vietnamese to strike a reasonable deal. So this was the conceptual strategic policy of the president as he set out in 69. And he, by 72, he managed to achieve all three of these goals.
4: So it really was a, three, a three-legged stool. You, right. needed, you needed to get out of Vietnam. You needed to open with China. You needed a arms State. control with the Soviet Union. Right. And no, no one of those legs would stand without the other.
3: Well, they all reinforced each other. obviously.
0: Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. Today is a special edition and the first of what I hope will be many commentaries as our show moves forward. Not on history, but on current events. uh, Perhaps using history as a guide. Uh, This commentary is simply going to be on the importance of having a strategy. A well thought out strategy. Instead of operating in foreign policy, or any other policy on a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, President Nixon was a strategist, and the lessons he applied still work, I think, today. And his writings are st- strangely applicable to the situations we face in, in, in recent times. They've almost been stunningly accurate, almost like a, a psychic wrote them. In a recent article titled Nixon and China 50 Years Later, Francis Simba writes... When Nixon looked back at the week in RN, his memoirs, he wrote that the United States must cultivate China during the next few decades while it is still learning to develop its national strength and potential. Otherwise, we will one day be confronted with the most formidable enemy that has ever existed in the history of the world. Nixon referred to China in The Real War, uh, one of his books, as the Awakening Giant China, he wrote, potentially could decide the world balance of power in the last decade of the 20th century and could emerge as the most powerful nation on earth during the 21st century. China progressed, pr- possessed a huge population, enormous natural resources, and some of the ablest people in the world. Nixon called the China U.S. reapproachment of 1972, quote, the most significant geopolitical event since World War II. But, he wrote, the most significant geopolitical event before then was the Sino-Soviet split that preceded it. Now, the Sino-Soviet split, which Nixon did so much to exploit, erased, at least for the time being, the specter that haunted the world, that of an aggressive, monolithic Sino-Soviet bloc. Nixon wrote, Great nations act on the basis of interest, not sentiment and that the key questions looking forward, Nixon wrote, were how long the Sino-Soviet split would last, how permanent improved China-U.S. relations would be, how China would deal with economic and political reforms at home, what role in the world China's leaders envisioned for themselves for the 21st century. And Nixon envisioned China being a, a great Power with a formidable military. He envisioned China as an economic colossus and perhaps the strongest nation on earth in the 21st century. Was, that's scary. This article continues. Chinese leaders see themselves as the center of the world, the the celestial power, all under the heaven. And he, you know, he warned that if. China reverted to the communist politics of the 1950s and 1960s, it would pose, quote, an enormous threat to the peace of the world and to the survival of the West. What matters is the Soviet Union threatens us. China does not. That was his mindset in 1972. And if we force China back into the Soviet orbit, the threat to the U.S. security would, quote, be infinitely greater than it is today. Simpa's article goes on, quoting Nixon, The relationship at the time was based on common interest and fears of the Soviet Union. If the interests changed and the fears faded, which is what later happened, there would be nothing to prevent China from being an adversary. What is worse, Nixon warned, is there could be no real peace if China and the Soviet Union renewed the strategic alliance. Well, the Soviet Union is gone, but... This is kind of what we confront today, as, as Senpai writes. Nixon hoped, as he wrote in in the book 1999, the common economic interest would sustain good relations between the U.S. and China. Quote, relations between great nations, Nixon wrote, are complicated, intricately structured devices that have to be watched and tended constantly. The article went on to talk about Nixon's views uh, concerning the new world that emerged after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he in, in it, he talked about the fact that we were now the world power, but we had to know there were limits there. Quote, There should be no U.S. crusade for global democracy. The, way, the, the very notion ignores the limits of U.S. power. U.S. global leadership should instead be based on the understanding of constant geopolitical realities. There is... Too much at stake in our relationship to substitute emotionalism for foreign policy. The United States should not let human rights completely define the relationship with China. Simple continues, In Beyond Peace, Nixon's last book, which was Beyond Peace, Nixon predicted Russia would again become a great power, and the important question would be whether a strong Russia would be a friend or an adversary of the West. He warned against creating the impression that the United States wants to proceed with a new encirclement of Russia. He urged U.S. policymakers to help reduce tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Does any of that argument sound familiar? It does to me. Uh, today, the powerful China that Nixon foresaw is a reality, but it's viewed more as an enemy than, Uh, rather than an ally to the United States, is how this article that Mrs. Simpa wrote ends. Why? That's to my question. Why have we allowed the political realities of the rising China and the return to the world stage of Russia not be something that shaped our foreign policy strategy? And I think the reason is pretty simple enough. It's because we don't have one. Richard Nixon wrote in his book's about China and Russia and the new world in which we would be the lone superpower for a while after the fall of communism and the Soviet Union's demise. And he wrote, one, China would become a superpower in the 21st century. Don't define our relationships with them based on human rights totally. Don't let China get closer to Russia than they, than they are with us. Keep common economic interests with China. On Russia, he warned, they would return as a great power, so we needed to reduce the tensions in the Ukraine and don't uh, give them the threatened feeling of encroachment or encirclement of Russia. And then, and the overall U.S. strategy should not go, go on a global crusade for democracy, uh, ignoring U.S. limits to our power. We just totally and completely ignored every single bit of that advice from President Nixon. We did all of it, and we did all of it, with absolutely incompetent leadership and no strategy at all. Instead of a strategy in Afghanistan, we went in and stayed without one, changing our strategy as we went along over and over again for two decades. We tried to nation-build in a nation that's not even unified by anything.
5: There are deep questions among Americans about the competence of government. From the messy rollout of 5G this week, To the afghanistan withdrawal to testing on covid what have you done to restore americans faith in the competence of government and are you satisfied by the view of the competence of your government look
6: let's take afghanistan i know you all like to focus on that which is legitimate we were spending a trillion dollars a week i mean a billion dollars a week in afghanistan For 20 years. Raise your hand if you think anyone was going to be able to unify Afghanistan under one single government. It's been the graveyard of empires for a solid reason. It is not susceptible to unity, number one. So the question was do I continue to spend? that much money per week in the state of Afghanistan. Knowing that the idea that being able to succeed other than sending more body bags back home is highly, highly unusual. My dad used to have an expression. He'd say, son, if everything's equally important to you, nothing's important to you. There is no way to get out of Afghanistan after 20 years easily not possible no matter when you did it and i make no apologies for what i did i have a great concern for the women and men who were blown up on the line at the airport by a terrorist attack against them but the military will acknowledge and i think you will who know a lot about foreign policy that had we stayed and i had not pulled those troops out we would be asked to put somewhere between twenty and fifty thousand more troops back in, because the only reason more Americans weren't being killed than others is because the last president signed an agreement to get out by May the first, and so everything was copacetic. Had we not gotten out, and the acknowledgement is, we'd be putting a lot more forces in. Now, am I? Do I feel badly? What's happening to? as a consequence of the incompetence of the Taliban? Yes, I do. But I feel badly also about the fistulas that are taking place in Eastern Congo. I feel badly about a whole range of things around the world that we can't solve every problem.
2: It's now joining me from Washington, finally back from that trip to Afghanistan and uh, Iran as well. Martha, it's just remarkable hearing you talk to those service members who weren't even alive for the 9 11 attacks, which launched the war in Afghanistan. What's General Miller's message to those who have been serving there in the past 20 years?
4: unequivocal message, Kira, that everyone who has served there accomplished what they went there to do, and they should be proud of their service. Uh, But of course, he is concerned about what comes next. But it really was quite extraordinary talking to all these young people who most of them didn't remember 9-11 at all. And then, of
2: course, one of those soldiers said she wasn't even born yet. Wow. We also heard General Miller there asking whether Americans will have to be back on that base in the future. And you spoke to him about how that actually happened in Iraq when the U.S. withdrew forces in 2011 but had to go back in. How concerned is he that that could happen now in Afghanistan?
4: Well, well, I think he is concerned. And and I have to tell you, Kier for me, it it was somewhat a repeat of history just being there in these final days for our troops being in Afghanistan. I was on what was supposed to be the last convoy out of Iraq. And, of course, years later, uh, the U.S. was back in Iraq because ISIS was was storming that country. And and I really directly asked General Miller about that. And he said there's basically no guarantee that they won't be back. is of course hopeful they won't have to come back and things will be all right. But you take a look at that country right now and Taliban is overwhelming
2: many of those districts. And finally, Martha, we saw last night that President Biden uh, ordered airstrikes on Iran-backed militias near the Iraq-Syria border. How's the administration explaining that decision now?
4: Well, basically, they are, they are taking action. They call it defensive action because these Iranian backed militias have been using these commercially available drones, pretty small drones, and they're loading them up with mortars and dropping those on U.S. bases. So the administration says we're taking action. They launched those airstrikes, uh, and they are continuing a back and forth with those Iranian backed militias, Kara.
2: Martha Raddix, glad you're back safely. Thanks, Martha.
7: US intelligence officials are pushing back on the charge that they were caught off guard by the rapid collapse of Afghanistan's government but some intelligence officials tell NBC News that the events have unfolded much faster than even the worst-case scenario predicted. NBC News national security correspondent Ken Delaney joins us now. Ken, thanks for being here. And first off, there's there's this huge disparity between when the intelligence community thought the Taliban actually could take over and when it did so how could officials have have, have missed this how did it happen how do we get here
5: good to be with you morgan you know this story is evolving rapidly and i've been on the phone all morning on this and, and i can say the picture that's developing is that perhaps they weren't as surprised as we initially thought i spoke to a western intelligence official this morning who said there absolutely was reporting that this could go south very fast including in days that as soon as the united states pulled away It's air support that the Afghan military might collapse. I don't think that was a universal view, but it was certainly one of the things that the intelligence community reported was possible. And I spoke to another official who was on the consuming side of that intelligence who said, look, we plan for a number of contingencies, including this one. So I think more and more, it looks like President Biden went into this with eyes wide open, knowing that this kind of rapid collapse could be a possibility. But uh, carrying forward this policy Anyway, now I don't think the uh, officials knew for sure that the Afghan military wasn't going to fight at all. But there is reporting out there that the Taliban in recent days have been making secret deals to secure the surrender of some of these hmm. commanders. And surely our intelligence agencies knew about that. Morgan.
7: So can I actually go back to the point you made about air support, Ken, because I read a report that said basically when the U.S. military was training the Afghan military, military, a key component of their sort of infrastructure here in the U.S. is that air support. And so that didn't actually work once the U.S. pulled out. Can you explain how that left the Afghan military? in such a sort of delicate state.
5: Morgan, that's a really great point that you're making. What I'm hearing from a lot of different sources is that we tried to build an American-style, a Western-style military in Afghanistan in a culture that just could not adopt um, our way of doing things. And that included, you know, complex air support um, and and, and all the kind of layers of command. Um, And, you know, despite that, though, there were people inside the U.S. government that thought That the Afghan military was going to fight. Um, Let's take a listen, for example, to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and what he had to say about that. It is certainly the case that the speed with which cities fell uh, was much greater than anyone anticipated, including uh, the Afghans, uh, including uh, many of the analysts who looked hard at this problem. And part of the reason for that, Savannah, is because at the end of the day, despite the fact that we spent 20 years and tens of billions of dollars to give the best equipment, the best training and the best capacity to the Afghan National Security Forces, we could not give them the will and they ultimately decided that they would not fight for Kabul and they would not fight for the country. And that- I have to say, Morgan, that is not a surprise to some of the people I've been talking to today, the idea that the Afghan a military that we trained wouldn't fight for this government that many viewed as deeply corrupt. Morgan, Now, if that isn't bad
0: enough. We dealt with both Russia and China with no strategic thought at all. And now they're together. They've got common interests together. They're working together to authoritarian regimes. And the New York Times reported today that we were briefing the Chinese about intercepts that we had were getting up near Ukraine, and the Chinese were taking them, rebuffing us, but taking the information and giving it to the Russians. Now, how incompetent is that? It just, it just, it's a scary situation that our leadership is not thinking any more strategically than they're doing. And you know, I can dump on Joe Biden all day. This, but this goes back to 1999 and 2000. I mean, we've been We, it, it, we have had 20 years of knee jerk, no thought leadership in this country.
8: The
4: presidents of Russia and China, as we reported, met today and reaffirmed their desire to have closer ties. The meeting comes as Russian troops continue to mass on the border with Ukraine and after weeks of intense negotiation between Russia and the U.S. and NATO. Amna Nawaz has the story.
8: That's right, Judy. In a joint statement, both countries said they, quote, oppose further enlargement of NATO and called on the alliance to abandon its, quote, Cold War approaches. The statement also said that China is, quote, sympathetic to and supports the proposals put forward by Russia to create long-term, legally binding security guarantees in Europe. So, What does all this mean? For that, we turn to Elizabeth Wishnick. She's a senior research scientist at the Center for Naval Analysis. That's a Navy-funded think tank. She's on leave from Montclair State University and has written extensively about Russian-Chinese relations. Elizabeth Wishnick, welcome to the NewsHour. Thanks for joining us. So that joint statement earlier had some thinly veiled swipes at the U.S. and its allies. Just... Step back for a moment here and tell us what what is this? What are we seeing here? What's driving the strengthening of Russian Chinese relations right now?
9: Well, I think the the strengthening of the relationship has occurred um, over the last several years, uh, even prior uh, to the Russian annexation of Crimea in twenty fourteen. So, we, I think we saw this trend after the financial crisis in uh, two thousand eight, when uh, Russia and China. Uh, saw that there were real problems in in the um, international order, the, at least in the economic order, and they hoped together to create some alternatives. And so they began to um, expand their partnership at that time. But certainly there has been uh, a deepening of the partnership uh, over the past uh, eight years or so.
8: But what does all this mean in real world terms, especially at this moment? For example, if Russia were to invade Ukraine, do we know what China would do?
9: Well, let's look at what China did the last time. Uh, so in 2014, uh, China was in a tight spot uh, because China has long standing positions um, um, supporting territorial integrity and against uh, the splitting of territories and so forth. And so when a re- resolution came up in the UN Security Council in March of 20. 20- 14 uh, China abstained and uh, instead of supporting Russia uh, on that resolution so I think uh, China will will try to to uh, thread the needle carefully this time as well should that situation arise and I think um, a war in Ukraine is not in China's interest uh, they have economic ties to Ukraine and uh, other connections uh, to Ukraine with the belt and road initiative their trade in transit um, initiative that wants to connect China to Europe. And uh, Ukraine is one of the hubs that it hopes to use for that. So I think uh, Xi Jinping is hoping that there is a peaceful outcome to this crisis.
8: At a time of rising tension between the the U.S. and Russia and and NATO, what does China get from this? What does President Xi get from showing that there's a strengthened bond between his country and Russia right now? Well,
9: apart from Russia, uh, China doesn't Really have a lot of friends in the international arena, so so Russia is really um, the main partner that that China has, and so it shows that uh, China is not isolated internationally. On the in the UN Security Council, um, Russia has provided some key weapon systems to China that that improve uh, China's uh, position in uh, the Indo Pacific region. And um, both of them, uh, they use one another to reinforce uh, their understanding of the global norms that they would like to see. So norms that allow more uh, space for authoritarian states and um um, the ability to to define some of the rules of the road that they think would benefit them.
8: So Elizabeth, there are those that look at this moment and say that it's actually very dangerous in a lot of ways. They say they see two autocracies who are ideologically aligned, who are attempting to create a dual crisis for the U.S. that the U.S. can't really fight on two fronts against two large powers like that. One analyst actually said it's the greatest threat the U.S. has seen since the beginning of the Cold War. Do you? see it that
9: way? I certainly see this as a precarious moment with more than 100,000 Russian troops uh, poised on the border with Ukraine. Um, But I don't know that we're going to automatically see a a two-front crisis here. I think that the comment you alluded to uh, refers to the prospect of uh, some Chinese action against Taiwan um, occurring while the world is distracted by uh, the Russian threat to Ukraine. And I don't see that as, as happening because uh, China has longstanding interest in, in what it calls the reunification of Taiwan, which it considers a renegade province. And this Is such an important interest for China. I don't see it tying it to Putin's more opaque plans for Ukraine. China and Russia don't always walk in lockstep on all of the issues that concern them, even though they have the same um, interest in in changing some of the rules uh, of of the international system that they feel work against them.
8: That is Elizabeth Wishnick from the Center for Naval Analysis joining us tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been my, my pleasure.
0: Where are the strategic thinkers? What is our plan? Are we just being reactionary to everything? You know, in football and in politics, it's an old saying that when you're on defense all the time, guess what? You're losing. You got to have a plan. You got to have a strategy. You got to move on what you know is happening. And you have to live in the real world, folks. You can't just be, you know, in this you, 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 utopia or this uh you know how you want the world to be because it's a cruel world out there folks <laughs> it is not we can go in there and tell a world power like china you're going to do this and that uh and and they're going to do it but you you've got to have some basic geopolitical you know reality common sense you got to live in reality i guess is the word for it here's some thoughts that i have and i'm certainly not Richard Nixon, but no more nation building. Uh, when terrorists kill us, we go in and kill them. Hunt them down, and then we leave. We don't stay there in in next country for the next 20 years. You need to build a strong Navy. I, I just was reading an article, 500 ships or more, as Admiral Gilday said last week, and he was in front of uh, uh, some governmental bodies talking about what the Navy was going to need. We needed a strong Navy. We need... Twelve carriers, he said. We need a strong amphibious force to include nine big deck amphibious assault ships, and, uh, and another nineteen or twenty landing platforms or docks to support them. Uh, perhaps thirty or more smaller amphibious ships to support maritime lateral regiments, uh, and to sixty destroyers and probably fifty frigates, uh, seventy attack submarines, and a dozen ballistic missile submarines, and about a hundred support ships. That was his quote. And it reminded me of a briefing that I received when I was a congressional candidate uh, that made it very clear that we are the world's policemen, whether we like it or not. And we better face that fact. And we need to be able to move wherever and whenever we have to with maximum overwhelming force, if necessary. Uh, We need the best special forces in the world. And solid intelligence, and above all of anything else, we need our leadership that has a strategy and makes good decisions. But that last part is the essential part because all the military might in the world won't make up for total incompetence in leadership. And we have just been lucky the last two decades that we do not we have not been uh, challenged more uh, strongly in the world, and we've been challenged up to this to this time. But I think anybody looking at the world right now knows that that is about to change. And we've got to have leaders who have a strategy and an idea about what they're going to do about it. And stop worrying about Jewish space lasers and Green New Deals and blood drinking pedophiles All the rest of this just ridiculous nonsense and extreme, stupid politics. And that's what it is a lot of times. Because China, Chairman Xi, has said the United States is a declining power. That's what they think of us, a declining power. And Russia and Vladimir Putin, who is little more than a thug, thinks we're weak. And he's sowed as much division as he can figure out how to do it. And you can see what he's trying to do right now. we got to have a strategy to win and to keep the balance in the world intact. Because if America is not number one economically, militarily, you can see right now in Ukraine what can happen.
4: Back to our top story today, President Biden levels another batch of financial sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine.
1: And the president also announcing about 7000 U.S. service members will head to Germany. WGN's Gaynor Hall has been monitoring developments all day.
10: Yeah, Ben and Lourdes, Ukraine's president, has been calling on civilians to fight, appealing for help while this assault is unfolding across Ukraine. Global leaders are responding with stronger sanctions.
6: Putin is the aggressor Putin chose this war and now he and his country will bear the consequences
10: President Biden announcing additional sanctions on Russia going after the country's elites large banks and companies and technology exports Russia unleashing an assault on Ukraine from multiple directions and after a fierce battle Ukraine lost control of Chernobyl the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster. But Biden says the Russian president's ambitions are much bigger than Ukraine.
6: He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union.
10: That's what this is about. Families fleeing the violence are crossing the border into Poland.
4: And, you know, friends, everybody everybody is, uh, is in Kiev now and they are calling us and telling what is going on. And it's
6: and it's so full to buy, yeah.
10: and in several Russian cities, police reportedly detained hundreds as anti-war protesters took to the streets. Russia's President Vladimir Putin receiving international condemnation.
0: Now we see him for what he is a blood-stained aggressor who believes in imperial Conquest.
10: Putin calling the attack a necessary measure to protect Russia's security. Warning interference would lead to consequences never seen before.
6: We certainly would always be uh, ready for a dialogue which will bring us back to justice and the principles of the United Nations Charter.
1: Make no mistake, it's not
10: a military operation or whatever it was called yesterday in Donetsk or Lugansk. It's a war against Ukraine. But President Biden and allies have not tapped the most aggressive sanctions in their arsenal. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged them to cut Russia from the swift financial network that connects banks around the world. And Biden said direct sanctions on Putin are still on the table.
6: This aggression cannot go unanswered.
10: (sighs) President Biden said the sanctions were designed to not disrupt global energy supplies. More American troops are headed to Europe. Biden emphasizing that U.S. forces will not fight in Ukraine, but he says they will defend NATO allies if necessary.
11: Let me talk to you about the basic strategic thinking of the Nixon administration. We came into office with a war in Vietnam that had been going on for with American participation for five years. With the Soviet Union just having occupied the country of Czechoslovakia in Europe. And with a permanent crisis with China, with which there had been no communications for 25 years. The essence of the Nixon policy was not to deal with any one problem on a tactical level, but to see whether they could be linked together in such a way that the solutions reinforced each other and that the challenges could be met with superior force. And this is why the comments that are sometimes made about the Nixon administration, that they were too tough and others that they were too conciliatory, are in a way both partially true because the effort was to combine both strengths and conciliation in the same policy in order to get a world order in which the American people could feel secure. The people of the world would be convinced that the United States was a solution to crisis and not the cause of crisis and in which a new world order could be created. So, from the beginning we pursued this dual policy. And the Nixon principles, in my view, remain valid. First, it is important to remember that at the end of Nixon's first term, the various problems I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the problems with Russia, the Vietnam War, and the challenge of China, all came to a head simultaneously due to the, uh, a policy of linkage that Nixon established in the first weeks in office. There were summits in Beijing and in Moscow. There was a peace agreement with Vietnam and there was a relationship with China had achieved a major purpose in the Cold War. And the purpose was to prevent Russia from concentrating all its forces against Europe as in many respects it is doing today in different circumstances. But in those days, Uh, our instructions to the State Department and to the White House staff were, when you make a decision that involves both China and Russia, place yourself so that you are closer to both than they are to each other. And that policy has been maintained by several administrations for many decades. It's a policy that is in jeopardy today. But at this moment, it is not my intention to make any partisan comment. My intention is to show that a president could come into office recognize the issues, assign a strategy to them and come up with concurrent conclusions uh, simultaneously and the picture of a world that was both secure and at peace. That, in my view, is the Nixon legacy, and it is one that should be a basic consideration for any American leader dealing with the nature of the world which we are facing.